Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the apparently endless 2020 election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Well, my friends, it's been quite a week, hasn't it? I have to tell you that I had hoped and expected that this podcast would be dedicated primarily to talking um, with jubilation and excitement about the wonderful result in the Georgia Senate races, where Democrats won both Senate seats um, after a tough, tough fought campaign, giving us the majority and allowing us to take over the Senate, um, meaning that Joe Biden will be a president um, presiding at a time when Democrats control both the presidency and both houses of Congress. Huge, huge. Um, race there, and we will talk about that later in this episode. But of course, um, following the outcome, following the events that took place um, in the Capitol on Wednesday afternoon and evening, um, it would be foolish not to spend the bulk of our time talking about, well, frankly, the attempted coup um, and insurrection that took place when uh, Trump supporters successfully invaded and took over the congressional uh, chambers, both the House and the Senate preventing them from doing their business and halting the count of the electoral vote um, at the president's instigation. So um, in a minute, I'll be having a great conversation with Julie Norman um, from UCL, um, a U.S. politics lecturer who really helps put some of this into context. But I just wanted to run down for you the events of the day as they occurred um, in a timeline format so that we're all clear on exactly what happened. At 11 a.m., um, a rally of Trump supporters began um, outside the White House um, with quite a large crowd. I think there were estimates of up to 30,000 people. Shortly before noon, Trump begins speaking. He talks for over an hour to this crowd. He concludes his remarks by saying, quote, so we're going to we're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol and we're going to try and give the Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything, not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans the weak ones because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, so the president directs the crowd to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue towards the Capitol building. Meanwhile, at 1 p.m., Congress meets and begins to start the process of certifying the election results. Um, you will remember, perhaps, that um, a small number of um, uh, congressmen in both the House and the Senate had co conspired together to object to the certification of the results in um, certain swing states, which was um, expected to delay the vote count by several hours because it would require a debate to be had, even though ultimately that debate would be um, would result in the election being certified. It's worth saying at this point um, that whilst all the activity was happening outside in the House chamber um, and in the Senate chamber, Mitch McConnell, um, to his great credit, who is somebody I've never said a nice word about before, but I will now, um, gave a very firm speech making clear that the election was validly won by Joe Biden um, and that it would be dangerous and uh, inappropriate for anyone to vote to overturn that result. His colleagues nevertheless ignored him and proceeded with their efforts. Um, so while that's happening in the Congress, um, at about 1.10 p.m., rioters, meanwhile, um, arrive outside the Capitol building and begin grappling with police um, outside the Capitol building. Um, Shortly thereafter, they breach the perimeter of the building. 
At 2.22 p.m., Mike Pence, is who is presiding over the Senate at that point, is ushered out of the Senate chamber by security. At 2.24, so two minutes after his own vice president is ushered out as part of a security threat, Trump tweets an attack on Mike Pence for not following Trump's request that um, Pence illegally overturn the election result. At 2.44, shots are fired in the House chamber. At 3.51, the D.C. National Guard are deployed to try and get control over the situation. Um, at this point, rioters are basically running rampant through the house. They've been vandalizing property there. Um, they're taking photographs of themselves inside the building. Um, there's some imaging imagery that suggests they were taking selfies with Capitol Police officers. So there's a lot of questions about how the security services um allowed this to happen and whether um, they were as robust as they should have been in protecting us or whether indeed they might have been complicit. Um, And yet there's also plenty of other footage of Capitol Police um, apparently trying very hard to stop protesters and and, um, being uh, run over and and overwhelmed by the sheer numbers. It's also worth saying that during, at some point during this melee, um, five, I think five people um, died. Um, One woman was shot by Capitol Police, a Capitol Police officer himself passed away. Um, Others died um, in what were described as medical emergencies on the scene. So all that's happening. Um, At 4.17 p.m., Trump tweets a video urging the rioters to go home. But also um, in the video, he calls them, quote, special people who he, quote, loves. And he also repeats his false claim that the election was, quote, stolen from us. Uh, shortly after this, Twitter um, Twitter, take, Twitter, and Facebook both take down the video. And later that day, they both um, removed the president entirely from their platforms. Um, Twitter putting him on a 12-hour hiatus. And Facebook uh, later announces that they will uh, remove him from, the, from their platform at least until after he is out of office um, and and indefinitely um, until a time to be determined. Eventually, the D.C. police um, succeed in clearing the rioters from the building. And at 8 p.m., Congress reconvenes and it resumes counting the electoral vote. At 3.32 a.m., Um, With the announcement of the result in Vermont, Mike Pence announces that Joe Biden has been duly elected president. Quite a day. So let's have a chat about what this all means. I'm happy to share with you now my conversation with the wonderful Julie Norman. So I am delighted to welcome Julie Norman. And Julie is a lecturer in the U.S. Center, uh, the Center, <laughs> a lecturer at UCL in in the Center for U.S. Politics. Um, you've written a lot about U.S. politics and kind of the U.S. Um, for, for in, in an international context as well. Um, so I'm really happy to have you on today to talk about something that I don't feel very happy talking about. <laughs> um but let's let's just dive right into it, shall we? Because um, as a you know, as Americans, I think we we grow up with certain ideas about um, what our democracy is and how it works, and a lot of those ideas were were upended yesterday, were they not? They absolutely were, Karen. And I think we both were speaking just how we are both uh, have spent time in Washington D.C. It's the city that I'm from. I know you've lived there as well, and. Just seeing those images yesterday of the Capitol literally under siege, um, knowing what that means for 
the lawmakers taking part in the process yesterday, but also just for the city more broadly, was really quite jarring and quite shocking. Um, and with that said, I think it's something that a lot of us probably shouldn't have been that surprised to have happen after all of the rhetoric, the incitement that we have been hearing from Trump really since the election, but especially in this past week and the days leading up to yesterday's events. So um, as disgraceful and as awful as it was to see it, it was something that I think maybe in hindsight, um, maybe we should have been a bit more prepared for. Yeah, I think that's that's really valuable context, because I, I think you certainly have to say whatever the previous expectations for U.S. politics would have been, um, Trump has been slowly eroding our expectations for the past, you know, four plus years. Um, but also from a kind of historical and maybe from an international point of view, can you put into context for us what happened yesterday? And I mean that in the sense of, like, how bad is it? <laughs> Right. It's not something that has happened to us before, but these types of scenes are not that unfamiliar in other countries. That is true. And I with that said, I would I would caution to draw too many parallels between what happened in the U.S. yesterday and um you know, episodes of political violence that we've seen in some other contexts and many places that that I've worked and lived everywhere is different. Most countries have different kinds of tensions. And so I'm hesitant to draw too many parallels. But what is unique is this kind of episode taking place in the United States. We're used to having dissent. We're used to having protests. In the days following the November election, for example, many demonstrations from people of all different political backgrounds. But what we did not see was this just descent into a riot kind of atmosphere, especially one that was directly targeting lawmakers and a U.S. institution and intentionally trying to overturn, overthrow the results of a free and fair election. And so this wasn't just a singular protest that got out of control. This was a intended movement, really, to change the outcome of an election. And even more notably, as we know, that movement is one that has been fueled and prodded and pushed by the president himself, even through the events yesterday, um, thanking those who were carrying out these kinds of actions, showing solidarity with them, even while um, calling for, for quote unquote, peace. And so while the incidents themselves, the optics were quite jarring, the backdrop of this very direct challenge to democracy is something that we have not seen in the United States for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess as much as it was horrifying to see these scenes in the Capitol yesterday. And as much as it did look and feel and, and frankly was an attempted coup and overthrow of the lawfully elected US government, um, I suppose we should take some sense of consolation in that not only did it fail, it did not come close to, to achieving that objective. Um, it did threaten the lives of lawmakers and the safety and security of of of, of our elected officials. Um, you know, they got right into the heart of the Senate and the House. But one thing I was reflecting on is that those are places, physical locations, but the personnel institutions, right, the people who make up our governance um, actually still did their jobs. Um, well, and the election was certified in the end. I think that's exactly right. And I think one of the main takeaways from last night, one of the more hopeful takeaways anyway, 
was the fact that Congress did reconvene. There was a concerted commitment from members of both parties to ensure that they did, to ensure that the vote certification did go forward, and that by morning today in the U.S. that they had indeed confirmed President-elect Biden as the next president. So even with this extreme testing of democracy in the United States, um, we did see a potential bend, but not a break. And that is in line with, I'd say, what we've seen since November with Trump's various challenges over 60 different lawsuits and cases where courts um, election officials, state governments did hold and for the most part did their job. And those were individuals as well as institutions that stood up to these challenges and at the very at the end did deliver the 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 outcome um, that the democratic process had yielded. Um, so so there was a severe test. But you're right that it's important that um, that the process did move forward last night as it did. So I guess you could say that the people who were trying to break the political system um, failed to do so. However, there are also, we have to say, people within the political system who were trying to alter it in a very fundamental way. And we had 12 members of the United States Senate lodging an objection to the election results on completely spurious grounds. Um, these are election results that have been tried and found valid and to be a free and fair and well-conducted election in, I think, more than 60 different court cases have been certified by each individual state, come, you know, recounted in a couple of the critical states. And yet you still had members of Congress in both House and Senate who were willing to stand up and formally object to the certification. Now, people I've heard a lot of people talk about this as if like, oh, they're just making a stand or this is a last hurrah. But as Mitch McConnell himself said, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who I almost never agree with about anything, <laughs> stood up yesterday and said, this is not a, you know, a pure, like, show of, you know, show of, show of your opinion, um, actual discredit the election. And yet they did it anyway. Um, how concerned should we be about this trend of, of elected officials on the Republican side, um, basically no longer adhering to the norms of democracy? Well, this was indeed a concern even before the events at the Capitol yesterday. The fact, as you noted, that at least 12 senators planned to challenge the results and over 140 members of the House of Representatives. So these aren't just a few individuals here and there. This was a pretty substantial size of both caucuses. And it's true that the motivation, I believe, for these individuals was different than, say, those who stormed the Capitol. Um, with Trump and many of his most ardent fringe followers, they do seem to believe that the election was indeed stolen or rigged, even though that we have seen that's false. With many of these individuals in Congress, they seem to know that the election actually was free and fair, but they are trying to seize this moment for their own political trajectories whether it's for presidential runs in 2024 or for ensuring that they will have uh, Trump to campaign for them for their future House and Senate races. So, so for the elected officials, these were much more 
shrewd, calculated political moves, political theater, which um, is perhaps even a more cynical reason to engage in tactics like this. And I believe that Mitch McConnell and other Republicans like Mitt Romney and others who have spoken out from the beginning were very right to call out their colleagues for these actions. It's a very dangerous precedent to set. But I guess I guess the very fact that this is seen to be politically advantageous to members of Congress, and particularly, I want to say, members of Congress who operate in safely Republican districts, the Republican Party has been largely taken over by um, people who are true believers, as you allude to, Donald Trump's supporters and followers, genuinely believe not just this, but a lot of things that are not true and, and not in evidence um, in this world. And if it is politically advantageous to a large part of one of only two major parties in the United States for our elected leaders to um, act on that theory of reality, that's not really any different than them believing it themselves, is it? I mean, isn't that it doesn't that mean that conspiracies now run half of the U.S. political system? Well, unfortunately, we have seen this just spread of misinformation, a real embrace of misinformation over these last four years in particular. I do think that we are seeing a um, not an, an actual split, but a psychological split anyway in the Republican Party with how to deal with this. And the assumption even that aligning with Trump and that with aligning with his mistruths is advantageous is still to be determined and is still up for debate, I think, within the party. And I know we'll probably come to the Georgia runoffs, but it was, I think, very instructive for many in the party that two candidates who quite firmly hitched their wagons to Trump ultimately were defeated in a state where they were thought to to be projected to win initially, um, that maybe it's not advantageous as many of these individuals assumed it would be for their future campaigns to yeah. have that Trump badge on them. Um, so this will be the the grappling that the party will need to be dealing with. And um, and again, this this question of misinformation undergirding all of it will also be something that both parties, I think, are going to have to reckon with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like um, it is a tr it is an inflection point <laughs> one way or the other. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how how the American people respond to it. Um, and yet we did go ahead. The You know, Joe Biden was certified as the um, the, the, the president um, to be inaugurated on the 20th of January. If you're looking at this from Joe Biden's point of view, how would the events of yesterday change your thoughts about your approach to governance? I'm thinking especially in terms of um, are there new policies that he might consider that might help to resolve some of the weaknesses in the democracy that we've uncovered over these last few years? So Biden will be coming into a tough challenge in terms of dealing with this Gulf in American politics right now, as if he didn't already have enough on his plate <laughs> with a pandemic and economic crisis and whatnot. But, Climate um, crisis, racial unrest, you know. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, you know, Biden, he campaigned on this message of bringing a sense of moderation, someone who historically himself has been able to work across the aisle and has strong bipartisan relationships. So he's certainly come in hoping to do that. But honestly, Karin, I think he's in a pretty tough position trying to, quote unquote, heal the country right now. Um, he did come out with a pretty strong statement yesterday while the unrest was unfolding. And I think that was 
uh, instructive perhaps for how his approach to these kinds of issues in the future might be. Um, a pretty firm approach, but one that was also very um, non-escalatory, just um, calling for calm quite firmly and directly. And moving forward, though, he'll have a couple of different things to a couple of different options, I guess, for how to, to pursue some resolving of some of these gulfs. One is the more procedural and institutional. Like, are there actually things that he can do in terms of maybe reifying some of the norms that have been broken by Trump, either by institutionalizing them further or kind of setting up a few more guardrails that, um, that have, have become kind of damaged under the Trump administration? But the other, the other path would be to try and address some of the grievances of the Trump base and those who have been such ardent followers of Trump trying to find out what is driving that kind of allegiance from some of those voters to Trump. Are there issues and policies that can reach out to those voters in a way that um, that Trump won't have and, and, and Trump and his allies won't have as much of a steer? So he'll need to be working at the more institutional level, but also at the, the people and policy level to um, to to kind of combat this. But I think I think to your second point, um, it, it feels like that's been tried. <laughs> I mean, you know, correct me if if I'm missing something, but it does feel to me like, you know, Joe Biden himself was probably nominated, at least in part, because the party hoped that a, you know, middle class Scranton, Pennsylvania, relatively moderate um, candidate with some roots in the communities that that we're talking about here might be able to reach out to them. Um, that didn't show up in the polling in the, and in the, the election data. It does not look like Joe Biden improved on Hillary Clinton's performance with Trump's base by much. Um, he did a better job in some other areas, but um, didn't necessarily swing a lot of his his core support. We've been spending a lot of time over the last few years having conversations about economic anxiety and so forth. But of course, the people who are protesting are not necessarily the economically most vulnerable. In fact, typically they're not. Trump's Trump's median voter is is higher than considerably higher than average income. I, I'm just not sure what else there is to do in that area. Like, what are the options for for Biden? Yeah, I mean, everything you said is very true. Um, I believe that one thing that we have seen, not just during the Trump years, but, you know, previous years as well, is many of America just feeling like not heard and feeling somewhat alienated from quote unquote elites. And that goes for both conservative and liberal elites, just feeling kind of left out of that. And one can argue with whether or not those grievances are valid or not, but the fact that those grievances weren't really even um, acknowledged or held up or people felt they weren't until someone like like Trump came in. Like you said, Biden was trying to do that in his campaign. I I think I I would see him as having made, made a few more inroads, I guess, just in the fact that he was able to swing back some of those voters who had voted for, for Trump initially. But you're right, not in the kinds of numbers that he was hoping for. And I think all of this underscores the fact that this isn't going to be a one person job. This isn't something that just the president can do or even, quite frankly, just like the U.S. government can do. I mean, we're talking about systemic issues, things that run across economic and social lines and are not there's not just going to be a policy or a, a switch that you can flip, but maybe just more of a way of rethinking how as Americans we engage with each other, what community means. And for me personally, 
even trying to push back at some of the rhetoric of polarization. I think the more that we tell that story, the more embedded it becomes mm -hmm. and trying to challenge that narrative and look for ways to, to challenge it are, um, are places to start, but it's, it's probably going to be more from local grassroots community levels that this comes rather than top down from someone like the president as much as yeah. we would like that. I mean, I think your point about dialing down the rhetoric of, of polarization is a little bit, it's, it's very interesting because it's of course true that if you tell people that they're, that they're polarized, they'll feel polarized. If you, I mean, the Obama rhetoric was always very like, you know, there's more that unites us than divides us, you know, um, that, you know, that there isn't a red state in America and a blue America, there's a United States of America, all that kind of rhetoric. And I think it was probably successful at dialing things down to some extent but it only takes a small minority of people to cause the kind of violence and unrest that we've unrest that we've seen yesterday and there is a sizable minority not a tiny but good sized minority of people whose grievances as you talk about are not based on any genuine real world problem but on things that they have been convinced to be true. You know, the QAnon conspiracy theory alleges that a cabal of Democratic politicians are running a pedophile ring. There's no truth in it. Like, there's nothing you can even disagree with. It's just, like, completely invented out of whole cloth. But if you believed that to be true, you would almost feel justified in uprising against your government because they, these people are evil and they're... <laughs> like, what do you do with that? How do we begin? Yeah, no, every, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. And it gets back to our earlier point of just these misinformation campaigns and how that can really change what people, what people perceive to be right and wrong. And um, I think we do see a rift in the polarization in the United States right now between not just, again, different political parties, but people who see themselves as the moral ethical ones and the others as completely um, immoral or unethical. And a lot of the mistruths that are out there tell a story that make people believe that they're fighting for a just cause. And even what we saw at the Capitol and this idea of fighting for an election that people were convinced was, was wrongfully stolen or rigged, um, this was people who were convinced they were doing something, many of them anyway, not all, but many who, who thought they were fighting for a cause and just because they had been convinced of those mistruths. And so whatever moves forward, that is going to be a big part of this very complex picture and puzzle is how do we deal with the fact that there are so, there is so much misinformation out there, but trying to deal with that in a way that people don't feel that free speech is being impinged yeah. upon or feel further aggrieved by efforts to address that. Yeah, I do want to. I, I want to have one other point uh, or conversation about the about yesterday's events, and then I do want to move on to the Georgia runoffs because I'm really excited to talk about something that doesn't make me sad. Um, <laughs> But but before we do move on, I, I was struck yesterday in the media coverage of yesterday's events um, that quite a lot of people in the media were, were sticking to language calling the people who broke into the Capitol building yesterday protesters. And even at the end, I thought them. I found them saying the protesters. Oh, I shouldn't call them protesters, really. But they're not really settling on a form of language. Um, I actually even ran like a little Google Trends search, and I looked at all the different things you might call these people, and found that protests was still the one that was coming up the top. But why do what? What is the appropriate word to describe what we what we saw yesterday? Protests, 
riots, insurrection, trespassing, all the different ways you could describe it have very different connotations. Calling them protests makes it sound really politically valid. Call it trespassing, it sounds really petty. You know, call it insurrection and it sounds really epic. What, what's the right language here? This is so fascinating. I was observing this last night as well with the language and how it shifted over the course of the night and with different outlets, how it shifted as well. And I think the short answer is that probably all of the above are somewhat correct. There were a lot of people who gathered in Washington yesterday, some I think even being ardent Trump supporters and denying the election results were there to protest, had planned to go to the rally, had planned to be there on the mall and whatnot. Others obviously went with a very committed agenda to actually disrupt, challenge the proceedings, and actually engage in not just dissent, but in actual insurrection. Others, I believe, were opportunists who took advantage of this moment, this chaos, uh, to um, incite even further um, violence, and those would be those who are contributing to a riot environment. So when we have a situation like this that just so swiftly spins out of control, I think it's just more most accurate to say all of those individuals were present yesterday. But at the end of the day, those who are most extreme and most fringe are the ones that cause the most damage and the most trouble. And that was indeed a siege on the U.S. Capitol, an occupation of the U.S. Capitol, and an insurrection of the U.S. political process. Yeah. Insurrection is not a word that people use much, but maybe it needs to come back into vogue. <laughs> it's true. Form. <laughs> right. Well, let's let's move on to something less horrible. Um <laughs> The the other the thing that I thought was going to be the big news story of yesterday um, was that um, of course Raphael Warnock and uh, John Ossoff the two Democrats both won their re um, rerun elections for Georgia Senate giving Democrats fifty votes in the Senate which gives them the control of the chamber because Kamala Harris will cast the deciding vote as president of the Senate in her role as vice president. Um, Julie, at the uh, during the November election, after the November election was first certified, I uh, or the results were known. I was very skeptical about Democrats' chances of winning these two Senate seats, um, because both of them had underperformed Joe Biden, who very narrowly won Georgia in the in in that race. What changed between November and January that allowed these Democrats to win? Well, Karen, I th- I think a lot of us were were skeptical at, at November as well, and were not even uh, too hopeful going into yesterday. And the fact that the Democrats uh, winning back the Senate was almost an, an after story yesterday just speaks to how how quickly things have been moving this week. Um, but indeed, different things changed in Georgia. I mean, one, we saw in the general elections how much Georgia itself as a state has changed even in just the last four years. Um, there's been, I believe, a 25% increase of African-American voter registration in particular. A lot of that has been led by Stacey Abrams, the former gubernatorial candidate, of course. Um, And that has changed largely just the voting demographic within um, Georgia. And we saw a lot of that demographic come out in the vote yesterday. Also, we just see in Georgia this mashup of near the so-called Old South and the New South. We see both of those represented really quite strongly in this state. And we see, you know, really both parties just investing quite heavily to activate both those parts of the state. 
I think there was over $500 million of um, campaign spending over the last two months in Georgia. So a real um, top-down effort, if you will, to kind of turn out the vote, but also just this community organizing, get out the vote process that just galvanized so many voters to come out. And, and the turnout was high on both sides. I mean, obviously the Democrats won, but it was, um, I think, four and a half million voters ultimately casting ballots in a runoff in a state election, which is almost unheard of. Yeah, it was and, a record record run, uh, runoff election turnout by far. And only, only I think about... 10% down from the November um, outcome, if that's if, if I'm remembering correctly. So it was really close to the general election. Absolutely. Um, and so I just, I think partly was just this mobilization of voters, but also a response to what we saw happening from Trump between the November elections and this week. Um, Trump was challenging the general elections in broad terms, but coming down especially hard on the state of Georgia and Georgia election officials, I think that did not sit well with many moderates and independents. And it certainly galvanized a lot of Democrats to come out in a way they probably wouldn't have before. And it also put Trump's own Republican allies um, and candidates in the state in a tough position and I think probably weakened their chances going into the runoffs as well. Yeah. I mean, it's been a busy week because the other big news story of the week that, that we've almost forgotten about, but was a really big story in its own right, was the Washington Post published um, a report and indeed the, the, an hour's worth of audio of Trump talking to the Georgia Secretary of State and basically just openly asking him to find additional votes for the president. I mean, really pretty, I mean, I'm exaggerating slightly, but it was pretty explicit. Like, I need 11,000 more votes. Please find them for me. I mean, he used those words. Yes. I mean, that's that's exactly what we heard. And we, we know from reports that Trump has pressured state officials in the past in Pennsylvania and in Michigan, for example. But this was the first time that we had an audio transcript that really made clear what he was asking for. And this was, as you said, almost an hour of begging, cajoling, threatening at various points to find these, quote unquote, missing votes and to turn the election. And again, um, many of Georgia's voters had already voted by the time this audio leaked, but it was prior to the election day itself. And I do think that just assault on the electoral system, but on Georgia elect election officials in particular, um, was quite alienating to many, even prior Trump supporters within the state. And so we did see kind of a switch in terms of um, overperformance and underperformance mm -hmm. for the Senate candidates compared to um, who had voted for Trump in the general elections. It's been really fascinating to me to watch this whole dynamic unfold because, as you alluded to, Stacey Abrams has been such a leading light in um, helping Democrats organize and creating infrastructure on the ground that allowed us to win yesterday. She became um, the kind of figurehead, if you will, of the the movement for democracy in Georgia after losing a, a, a gubernatorial election to Brian Kemp, who had been very, um, you know, controversial, let's say, in his deployment of his role as Secretary of State in that election. Now the Georgia Secretary of State is uh, is appearing to behave very well. Brian Kemp himself as governor is a little bit back and forth, but he's been, you know, doing his job. He hasn't worked to try and find the votes the president wants, although it's not clear he is able to do so. Um, so it's, it's really strange. I would have thought that, like, at the time, it felt like Brian Kemp was already quite a challenge to our democracy, but now we've we've pushed 
past that. It's, it's, it's even worse. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, and I do, I think it's important to give credit where credit is due and for Kemp, for Raffensperger, for many officials in Georgia, as well as yeah. in other states who, um, you know, are strong Republicans. Many were quite vocal Trump supporters, um, really stood up and and did the right thing when they were pushed to do so in this round anyway. And I think it underscores, at least for me, an important kind of lesson for politics. I think we have a tendency to want to put people in, in in good guy and bad guy kind of boxes. And there's there's often a lot of nuance, a lot of lessons learned. And um and I think what we saw in this election, you know, really up through some changes in character even yesterday, is that um when pushed to the brink, some people will will step up even when you don't expect them to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So um talking about characters, Stacey Abrams being a great character in Georgia politics, another great character in Georgia politics um was not alive to see this election happen, but is very much um a shadow over the election, which is the great the, the late great representative John Lewis, who passed away last year. Um, he was um, the two Senate newly elected senators for the state of Georgia. John Ossoff was a staffer for John Lewis, worked really closely with him. Um, Raphael Warnock was his pastor. Um, Lewis attended uh, Warnock's church, Emmanuel Baptist Church, which is also the church that Martin Luther King famously um, preached in. Um, both of these two men come from a John Lewis tradition of Georgia politics. Um, but they're very different. You know, a 33-year-old um, Jewish man who basically runs a documentary film studio and, you know, a, a still quite young um, Black African-American preacher, um, they seem to campaign together as a team. Did it, did it feel like they were they were one team? Well, honestly, I, I think their synergy was very strong and helped both of them over the line. They represent two very different faces of the Democratic Party, but both very strong elements of the Democratic Party and strong elements of Georgia as well. Um, and I I believe that they were both pretty intentional from the beginning in seeing this as a joint effort. They knew they were stronger by campaigning together by showing kind of a, a solidarity across their campaigns. And that really did just shine through, I think, um, even though there were difference, slight differences in the actual vote margins, the having both of them running at the same time, I do think buoyed both of them significantly. Um, and Warnock in particular had a particularly strong campaign that I think probably helped Ossoff in his race as well. And indeed what you said, you know, both of these, uh, both of these men carrying on the tradition of John Lewis, who is not just a Georgia hero but a United States hero, um, is is significant. And Lewis's passing this year, in particular, he was very much on the minds of many voters um, in the last in the November election, as well as in the runoffs. And you know, ideally, hopefully, these individuals can carry on that vision as they move into the Senate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that um, has been commented upon in terms of the changing nature of how Democrats compete in southern states is that historically Democrats have tended, when competing in Republican-leading uh, states, and especially in the South, they have tended to seek out, let's be honest, white candidates um, and candidates who are very middle of the road, perhaps conservative leaning within the party. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, neither of them are flaming liberals necessarily, but they would probably 
no one would classify them as the conservative wing of the party. Um, they were not both kind of middle-aged white men, um, you know, a black man and a Jewish man. Is this a, a strategy that we should expect to see Democrats deploying more often going forward, considering that it has been successful a couple of times now? I mean, Stacey Abrams very nearly won the governorship in a very similar strategy. Yeah, I mean, I believe that the the Democratic Party obviously is very diverse. It represents a lot of different groups and demographics. And so I think increasingly we're going to see more diversity in the candidates just by nature. And also just, yes, strategically in terms of who is coming out to vote. Um, again, one reason this election went the way it did was because of very strong grassroots voter mobilization that reached communities in the past that um, if uh, not outright had their vote suppressed, were definitely not encouraged or facilitated um, to have have their vote vote counted. And by you know, investing in those communities, I mean, that is that is something the Democratic Party has also failed to do in the past. They have not always done proper outreach in um, in demographics that they often just took for granted. And I think doing the real community organizing work has shown to be crucial in the states that they won in this November election. And they're the places where they didn't do that, that also showed up. And so I think reinvesting in that more kind of grassroots organizing um, is going to be important moving forward and it'll affect the kind of candidates that come forward as well. Yeah, absolutely. So if you look past Georgia and you say, okay, so first of all, fantastic, very important win for us. Um, what are the what are the next states that you would expect Democrats to try and um, pick off, if you will, and sort of engage in that kind of which ones are ripe for the picking? I mean, Arizona, I think, is, is is in you know, we've increasingly leaning in our direction. I think we've we won it in this presidential election and, and, and twice in a row we've won Senate races there. Um, what other states would you have on your radar? Yeah, well, Arizona, I think, is is obviously one of the other main places where we'll see Democratic focus. I think even though Texas did not go nearly the way that Democrats hoped it would in this election, they did have some momentum there that may not turn the state for presidential races, but I believe they can have further motive, uh, momentum there for um, down-ballot races and especially for more state-level races that did not turn their way in this election, but I think could in the future, and could thus have a big effect on a big state there. Um, Outside of those, you know, right now, just the country is changing a lot with its demographics. And, um, you know, I, I think the Democrats will be be wise to kind of keep their options open with with where they focus next. But just flipping Georgia, making Georgia a veritable swing state was a pretty big achievement in this election. And we'll be looking to see what kind of lessons work there to extend elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Joe Biden will be entering a challenging, challenging time um, as president. He will have the Senate in his control. What is the immediate near-term impact of that? Like, what what would be the first things that you would expect having Senate control will allow him to do um, in this first few months of his office? 
Yeah, well, first and foremost, having Senate control allows um, the president to usually get their nominations through for cabinet posts. So there are only a few votes in the Senate that require just a simple majority, but presidential appointments is one of them. So already it'll make the first couple weeks of Biden's administration easier, just knowing that his nominated picks for the cabinet can go through. We already saw Biden essentially name his attorney general just hours after it became clear what the Georgia results were going to be simply because having that knowing that would go through enabled him to make the choice he wanted to make. So first and foremost, we'll see it with those appointments. Um, Secondly, we'll see it just in terms of who controls the different committees in the Senate. So just having Democrat leadership in those committees is going to be crucial for the opening days, but also for moving forward. And obviously, when it comes time to actually put bills up for vote, that's really where we'll see the difference, because that majority party is the one that just decides what even comes to the floor or not. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big change. I mean, I think it's worth calling out um, you talked about the ability to get his cabinet approved. It's worth calling that out in as in itself a norm that has shifted a lot um, um, as America has polarized because it didn't used to be that common for cabinet officials to routinely receive partisan objections. Um, you know, there have always been cabinet officials who for specific reasons, you know, they might be caught, you know, with tax problems or if they have controversial policies in their past that might have come to life. But it's never in the past been the case that it was routine for half the Senate to just object in principle. Isn't that a big change? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we obviously see this reflected in judicial appointments as well, but also in cabinet appointments where in the past, what used to be what what we used to see in the past is just a rubber stamp kind of a confirmation that this person is okay has now become a real test. And with the opposing party for the last six years, the Republicans anyway, in the Senate, really trying to um, obstruct many of those nominations going through and looking for cause to block them. So again, that will make it important for Biden to have the Senate on his side, but it will also hopefully push some reflection from both parties about um, how far down that road they want to go, because it's just, um, you know, having some constraints between the president and the Congress is one thing, but having gridlock to the point where you can't even approve cabinet secretaries is just not good for good governance. Yeah. Deep breath. Let's hope everybody settles down a little bit. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) It's a tough old world out there. Um, Listen, Julie, have you got a few minutes and we can just play the gut check game? Yes. Great. Excellent. So for those who are new to the podcast, I have on some little bits of paper um, written down quotes or expressions or um, uh, statements this week from around the political world and the campaign trail. Um, I have, um, in this case, I have chosen a series of reactions to the events of yesterday on the Capitol from various different people. Um, I'm just going to read them out, pull them out of my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, read them out, and then Julie and I will both react so um, let me pick the first one. Okay, the first one. Oh, this is interesting. This is from Representative Ilhan Omar, who says, quote, I am drawing up articles of impeachment. Donald J. Trump should be impeached by the House of Representatives and removed from office by the United States Senate. Yeah, well, 
I think a lot of people yesterday, especially Democrats, were starting to talk again about impeachment for the president. Um, obviously, I think all all options are on the table, including the 25th Amendment to uh, to possibly um, have Pence in the cabinet curtail the president. In reality, with less than two weeks before the inauguration, I'm not sure how likely that would be, even if there was the political will. But it is important, I think, to have lawmakers from both sides of the aisle considering these options, not only to prevent further incitement, but also to just point out that what happened yesterday, like, cannot and will not be tolerated again. And this isn't something that we're just going to blink and pretend was was something that just got a little out of control. Yeah. I mean, is it just as simple a question as like, there are relatively few ways of calling in an out of control president and impeachment is one of them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is this is obviously the main way that we know to um, to push back at a president. Mm-hmm. It may not be the um, it may not be the way that we end up moving forward with these next two weeks, but it's certainly our gut response to something that we saw like yesterday. What is so Talk me through, for the benefit of my listeners who get confused because it's confusing. Um, So impeachment is obviously a congressional procedure. Explain the 25th Amendment that's also been talked about. How does that work? So the 25th Amendment is when the vice president and either a majority of the cabinet or a body created by Congress decide that the president is not um, essentially fit to serve or able to serve, and they end up taking control so that the vice president removes the president from power, essentially, and and takes over his duties. That was something that was um, kind of floated and discussed previously in in Trump's administration, but without really much thought behind it because Pence was always so loyal. But after we saw yesterday, really for the first time, Pence even distancing himself from the president and many even within the Republican establishment questioning the um, the re- president's capacity even to serve for these less than uh, two weeks. Um, this has this has come up for discussion once again. Really practical question. Um, so if it's let's assume Pence were willing to do this, which it's not clear that he is, but let's assume he were. Majority of the cabinet, Trump has quite a few cabinet members who are acting or kind of not Senate certified. Would they be considered cabinet members for the purpose of casting a 25th Amendment vote? That is an excellent question, Karin. And to be perfectly honest, my my short answer is I'm not sure about yeah. that. Um, I'm, I don't believe that they would as acting, but I, I would need to – I'm not a legal scholar to be able to answer yeah. that fully. Yeah, but yeah, because one of the reasons he has so many acting ones is he hasn't been able to get like a lot of people improved through the Senate or he's just – unwilling to even try he hasn't wanted to appoint the sort of person that he could get through exactly yes definitely the latter i believe and that's because he wants to have loyalists in his cabinet and perhaps the 25th amendment is one of the reasons why that was important to him yes quite possibly Uh, speaking of which actually i might as well go ahead and pull out another quote that i've pulled here this is from april april ryan who's a white house correspondent to the issue that we were just talking about she reports that quote congressional leaders are in the undisclosed location and focusing on the 25th amendment to get real donald to get donald trump out of office exclamation mark i should add <laughs> uncharacteristically exclamation <laughs> mark from april Yes. Um, so again, I mean, this was um, as soon as events started unfolding last night, it was uh, reportedly that that the discussions around the 25th Amendment started. Um, again, I will have to wait and see for these next few days how that progresses. 
I would be surprised if um, if they were able to get the votes that they would need for that to take place. And I think that many Republicans will prefer to just kind of let the clock run out rather than mm-hmm. taking some kind of drastic action like that. Um, I know some others are worried as well that if um, that if Pence assumes some kind of power that he could potentially pardon Trump. So the pardons question is out there as well. Mm. Um, so there's many different considerations, but again, it's it's crucial to me that these conversations are happening, whatever outcome comes from them. I mean, it's kind of a fascinating scenario actually, because perhaps one of the kind of more situationally interesting aspects of this is that when the, the, the Congress went into lockdown, Pence was on the floor of the Senate convening um, against the president's wishes, um, the electoral college certification process, which he's required to do. I mean, it wasn't like he had a choice, but President Trump seemed to think that there was something Pence could have done to to stop it. So when they all went into lockdown, Pence and, and the members of Congress were all there together. So one wonders if that was almost kind of opportunistically, they were like, hey, long as we got you here. Yeah. I mean, quite possibly. And, and I've got to say, you know, again, in, in that spirit of giving credit where credit is due, I mean, Pence yesterday, you know, some would say way, way too late, but he did push back to the president even prior to the events at the Capitol. Reportedly, he is the one that actually encouraged um, uh, extra support from the National Guard to come and help get control of the situation that came from him by some reports, not from the president initially. So we did see Pence in a position really for the first time where he had to show some leadership, where he had to show some backbone and where he had to distance himself from Trump. And it was very crucial to everyone, I think, in that chamber that day that he was willing to do that. Yeah, yeah, very, very important moment. I mean, again, I don't agree with Mike Pence about months much, but uh, well done to him for for not doing the worst thing possible. Absolutely. <laughs> Never take for granted that people won't do the worst thing they could do. In this right. World. I think these days we, we just expect the worst sometimes, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, speaking of the worst, uh, let's go to a quote from Trump himself. Um in his uh, video that he released uh, addressing the protesters slash rioters slash insurrectionists, choose your poison, directly, Trump says, quote, we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. Oh, my God. I've got to say that yesterday had a lot of really, really awful moments. But I, I would say that was probably the low point when I heard Trump say that. Um, Just for context, this was a video that Trump released after Biden already went on the airwaves to very firmly call for an end to this and and calling an insurrection and whatnot. Trump, somewhat reluctantly, I think, got on and said this this video calling for, quote unquote, peace. But by coupling that very weak message with saying, I love you and expressing peace gratitude and solidarity with um, rioters who were at that very moment tearing through the U.S. Capitol, also in that video, repeating that that the election was stolen, this was a just cause. It was just abominable to hear him say that. I mean, there have been a lot of low points for Trump, but that was probably the lowest that I can remember. 
I mean, uh, we love you. You are very special people. Had a real resonance for me of it sounded very much like there are very fine people on both sides. It had that Char Charlottesville ring to it of like he really wants to personally praise these white supremacists. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's a really um, it's a very grim bookend, so to speak, to Trump's term to have the the Charlottesville incident and the way he responded to that. And then the events yesterday and his response to that, which um, obviously I would say he was much more directly, um, directly involved in inciting. Yeah. But his his response was was uh, equally, um, equally disgraceful. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he he bookended the video as well by um, and I didn't include this part in the quote, but by by repeating his belief that the election had been stolen, um, you know, really just explicitly out there. They've stolen this. We won by a landslide. Da, da, da. None of that's true. But if you believed it was true, you would genuinely feel that your country is being stolen from you. So it's it gives every reason to riot. Exactly. And um, this is. Something I alluded to before, I think, is that I, I believe at least some people there really do believe that. Yeah. And if you believe that <clears throat> believe that you're fighting for a just cause, it pushes people to do rather extreme things because they think that they're in the right. They think they are actually carrying out a moral duty. And it was just so reckless and irresponsible for Trump to try and convince so many people of that. Yeah. Right. Um, here's a quote from Joe Biden himself, um, the newly elected president. Um, can't wait till the 20th of January, please. Um, he, in his response yesterday to the rioting, he says, the certification of the Electoral College vote, it's supposed to be a sacred ritual, which we affirm. It's supposed to affirm the majesty of America's democracy. But today's reminder, a painful one, that democracy is fragile. Yeah, I... Again, I would say I, I was pretty impressed by Biden's comments last night. I think he had planned to give an economic address, but obviously pivoted to address what was actually happening. I thought what he said was um, pretty on point. I know there were, were some criticisms of some of his, his characterizations, but his just his tone, his way, I think, was was pretty spot on. And he wasn't mincing words. I mean, he was de-escalatory, but he was very clear that this was an affront to democracy, that these are not things that we can just take for granted. And I think just underscoring how Trump has just challenged so many of the norms that we did just take for granted in the past and has opened many Americans' eyes, including myself, to the many different places where um, potentially with someone who was even more um, even more shrewd and savvy, things really could have gone even worse than they did. And this fact that we need to be more vigilant and mm. that Americans who do care about democracy and about ensuring that things like this do not happen again are um, are, are are watching and are, are being active and engaging to, to try and prevent something like this in the future. Yeah, I, I thought Biden's statement was good. I, I found it, um, as you say, very clear, but also reassuring. Like he has that lovely like there was there were moments where I was like, the words you're speaking are very strong, but your affect is actually calming. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm glad of that because I'm so used to politicians behaving like Twitter yes. and, 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 and and dialing everything up. Yeah, um, I, I will I'll just add to that. Karen. I mean, I know Biden was not the first choice for a lot of Democrats coming out of the primaries, but I think in moments like that yesterday, someone like him was probably 
one of the most well positioned to deal with a situation like we saw at the Capitol. And hopefully that will extend into his term. Yeah. And I think I think his, you know, his very long career of I was very struck that he spoke about the kind of almost the 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 quasi ritualistic or quasi religious aspects of American democracy, because it's something I've been thinking about a lot is I think ever since we're children, we're sort of indoctrinated is a strong word, but we're like trained in this way of seeing American democracy that like the one thing that unifies us are the rituals and traditions. Right. And, and a lot of it is, you know, you can make criticisms of like, well, it wasn't really available to all Americans. And, you know, it's been, you know, our democracy has always been imperfect in, and it absolutely has. But I think we've been sort of trained in this way of thinking about democracy as being almost our natural national religion and I think Biden is a very true believer in that ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like it was right for him to be the one speaking to how how violated it is. Yeah, and with Biden, it doesn't come across as as as, as cynical or smarmy as I think it might from yeah. someone else. Like he, I think he does hold the the sanctity of democracy and the sanctity of the Senate in particular very very highly. And yeah. and I do think that comes across in the way he communicates about the country. So I have just one last quote um, to read out to you. This is from Mick Mulvaney, a former chief of staff to um, President Trump, who resigned yesterday from his position as, I think, a special envoy envoy to Northern Ireland or something. Um, But he says, quote, I called Secretary of State Mike Pompeo last night to let us know that I was resigning from that role. I can't do it. I can't stay. Those who choose to stay, and I have talked with some of them, are choosing to stay because they're worried the president might put in, might put in someone worse. Wow, that, that was a quote I had not seen, but obviously heard many of the reports of numerous uh, aides, administration officials who were uh, submitting their resignations yesterday and into today. Um, I believe uh, even some of the first lady staff resigned. And I, again, maybe too late for for many individuals to kind of take a stand like that, but quite telling that um, that even at this point, many individuals, even within this administration, do not want to be associated with it anymore. But also, I think the same concern that we've had from the beginning of the administration, some who feel that they might be a stopgap to even worse things happening if they were to step aside. So um, a lot of those officials, I do think, went in with good intentions, may have thought that they could um, you know, maybe dull or constrain some of the worst elements of Trump and, and work some changes from within the system. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's it's an individual choice for sure, but um, quite notable that many are stepping aside even at this point. It is a really difficult challenge, actually. I, I, weirdly, I do have a lot of sympathy for Trump administration officials who, you know, may have understood the danger that the president represents, and wrestling with what is the right thing for them personally to do. Um, because even if the only thing that they remain in office to do is be ready to refuse an unlawful order, that's a pretty important thing to do and it might like i think trump's behavior has shown that it might indeed be necessary to refuse an unlawful order um and and you know presumably he would appoint people who he feels confident would do his bidding 
So, Absolutely. Yes. And, and again, you know, we've seen that in Department of Defense in the days after the election. We've seen it really throughout Trump's whole term of ensuring that he has increasingly, increasingly loyal loyalists around him. And so I, I understand that sentiment as well, that um, that people fear what 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 could that what could even be worse if they stepped aside. Yeah, yeah it ain't good. Uh, well, we're 14 days out. <laughs> yes. L- less than two weeks now. Less so. than two weeks. Uh, what are your plans for Inauguration Day? Oh, well, I'll certainly be following things. I imagine we'll be um, commenting and, and analyzing the situation. Um, in the past, growing up in D.C., that was usually a day we'd try and go down to the mall and and, and be there and, and watch stuff. But um, being here in London, we'll obviously be following it from afar. And uh, we'll be curious in the next couple of weeks even to how the inauguration is going to um, to look. I understand there. It was obviously already going to be a much smaller affair due to Corona, but after yesterday's events, um, even to to what what they do to to make it all public will be interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of the striking features yesterday, wasn't it, that a lot of the rioters were actually using the stands that had been erected for the inauguration to 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 make their stand on. So exactly. Uh, yeah, interesting times, interesting times. Well, I wish you well. Whatever your plans for election for inauguration day, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay safe. Um, please keep well, you and your family. Um, I got nothing else to say. You can find me on Twitter at Karen Jr. K A R I N J R. Um, I am so excited for the 20th of January when um, we can begin to rebuild this country that is so terribly damaged. I am delighted that um, we will have two wonderful new senators from the state of Georgia um, to join us and uh, a majority in the Senate chamber. Um, but don't forget it's not just up to them it's up to us it's up to all of us to keep this democracy working because uh clearly there's some work to do love to you all talk to you soon